This is Transit Unplugged, and I'm your host, Paul Comfort. Thanks for being with us today on another episode of the world's leading public transit CEO interview podcast. And today we've got a global view of what's happening in public transit as we are recovering from the COVID-19 crisis. On today's episode, we speak with Phil Verster, CEO of Metrolinx in Toronto, Canada, Ms. Abimala Akinaja, who is Managing Director of the Lagos or Lagos Metropolitan Area Transportation Authority in Nigeria and Africa, and Mr. Abdullah Nasser, who is Executive Director of Operations at KGL Passenger Services in Kuwait. And we were all on a webinar recently, and this is the audio portion of it, where I give a presentation on the future of public transportation as we recover from the COVID-19 crisis. And our guests give us great insights into what's happening in their countries and in their regions, in Canada, and Africa, and the Middle East, all that on this special episode of Transit Unplugged. I think you'll really enjoy today. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Hello, welcome to the Trapeze webinar, The Future of Public Transport After COVID-19. Mr. Paul Comfort, the Vice President of Trapeze Group and former CEO of the Maryland Transit Administration, MTA. Paul's also the author of The Future of Public Transport and host of the number one podcast, Transit Unplugged. Mr. Comfort is an internationally renowned public transport expert with vast public transport and local government experience. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Secondly, we have Mr. Abdullah Nasir, the Executive Director of Operations at KGL Passenger Services. With expertise gained over more than 25 years in public transport, Mr. Abdullah Nasir has specialist knowledge and insight into the public transportation operation. He was previously the head of UITP MENA and fulfills several transport industry responsibilities, including Secretary General of the Kuwait Overland, Overland Transport Union. Welcome, Abdullah. Next, we have joining us Mrs. Ambola Akinajo, the Managing Director of Lagos Metropolitan Area Transport Authority of the capital city of Nigeria. She and her team plan to implement and regulate a multiple modal transport system that ensures seamless mobility and customer satisfaction in one of the largest and busiest cities in the world. A chartered civil engineer with over 30 years post-qualification experience, including the design and delivery of major transport infrastructure projects. Welcome, Mbimbola. Lastly joining us is Mr. Phil Verster, the CEO of Metrolinx Canada. Mr. Verster is a visionary leader with a reputation for transforming transportation and delivering quality services. He oversees the commuter train and bus services for Ontario, Canada, and is leading the development of billions of dollars in rail construction around Toronto. Welcome, Phil. That's all from me now. I would like to hand over to Mr. Paul Comfort to kickstart this webinar. Over to you, Paul. All righty. Thank you, Megan. And hello, everyone. Great to be with you. I'm talking to you this morning from near Washington, D.C., where I live, and excited to be part of this global webinar with some of the biggest and best leaders in the world for transportation. Very happy to be once again with my good friend, Phil Verser. 
uh, from Metrolinx, who wrote a chapter in my book that you see on your screen right now, The Future of Public Transportation. Phil, in my mind, is one of the top 10 transit leaders in the world, and so happy to have him be with us here as part of this, as well as my new friends, Abdullah and Abby, who also are big transportation leaders in their part of the world as well. Thank you so much for being with us. Today, I'm going to talk to you for the next 20 minutes about the future of public transportation. My book, The Future of Public Transportation, included chapters from 40 world transit leaders, from folks like Graham Curry, professor at Monash University in Australia, to Phil, and to other big transit leaders around the world. And it's funny, the timing of the book was that we put it out on Amazon just before the worldwide pandemic of COVID-19. And uh, it couldn't have been a better time because the projections in the book and the talk about how we're going to get there are more important now than ever. And you'll see that as we get into this topic. As Megan said, I've had uh, a career in transportation and have managed small systems, medium-sized systems, and then Baltimore, which is uh, one of the top 12 transit systems in America, uh, where we had uh, 5,000 employees and contractors, and we transported 380,000 passengers a day on all six modes, which was bus, light rail, subway, commuter bus, commuter train, and paratransit. So let's get right into the meat of the subject. As you know, as I mentioned, it's kind of funny. Here in uh, North America and in some parts of Europe, there had been a general decline of transportation in ridership over the last five years, uh, up until early part of 2020. And then in 2018, we kind of troughed out and saw ridership coming back up. First, we saw it with seven cities uh, in America, seven of the top 35 cities. And then in 2019, we saw major cities around the world see an increase in ridership. And it was a very exciting time. Some systems uh, had not experienced a decline. I know that my friends down in Australia had not seen a decline. And I know that some of the systems in Africa and the Middle East were seeing static or even increasing growth, which was wonderful. But boy, when this COVID-19 hit, it was a gut punch to public transportation. Uh, and we saw ridership declines across the world from 50 to 95% as governments came in and put in uh, massive constraints on trade and told people to stay at home. They told them not to ride transit uh, in many places. City leaders even told people that they thought that transit was a petri dish for germs to spread, which was very unfortunate. It's going to be a difficult image for people to erase from their minds now that we're coming out of this COVID-19. And of course, there's new studies coming out every day that show that transit was not that. But nevertheless, that was uh, the impact on transit was fast and fierce. And so as the demand for transportation went down, many transit systems reduced their routes accordingly to meet the demand. And so they've reduced the routes. A lot of major transit systems went to what they're calling their Saturday schedules, which were about 50, 60 percent less buses running and trains running. A lot of bus systems went to rear door boarding, allowing passengers to only enter from the rear of the vehicle. So the front could would not be a place where passengers would be coughing on the drivers or vice versa. As a result of that, they had to waive the fares because fare box collection is normally only at the front of the bus. And um, so. What they found was that uh, even at first, some of them said, hey, we'll allow people to tap and go, but it wasn't fair for those who were paying cash that they wouldn't pay. So a lot of systems just said, we're not going to collect fares anymore. Now, the implications of that, I think, are interesting. I'm believing that we are headed toward what I'm calling the death of the fare box. Many major transit systems have decided that 
they've been able to see their way clear of not actually needing cash. They want to go to a low-touch environment on the vehicle. So they're either moving to um, multi-use cards or credit cards, contactless credit cards, or e-faring on the phones, um, or, or even a zero-fare strategy like my friend Robbie Mackinnon in Kansas City wants to do. Also, I think what we're going to see now is a slow recovery of ridership on commuter services. I think that we've seen across the board now that we're kind of over the hump on the pandemic in most countries, even here in the U.S. and Canada. People are starting to get back on the vehicles and we're starting to see a a slow increase. I was talking with several CEOs over this weekend, including those in Atlanta, Washington, D.C., British Columbia, Canada. And uh, last night I was talking with um, another CEO around the world and also Graham Curry. And we were were comparing notes about what's happening and we're starting to see an increase in transit. And we think it'll get back, you know, rather quickly over the next few months, but commuter services where people are coming from the subways into the cities could be a little longer. I think that uh, cleaning is going to have to maintain these cleaning protocols and uh, in order to help people feel comfortable, we're even now seeing agencies put up on uh, electronic signs in their stations. You know, these vehicles are cleaned every two hours just to give a sense of comfort to the passengers. I think we're also going to have to enter a period where we're really remarketing ourselves uh, to the public and to remake our image of public transit. We may need to have the politicians who told people to stay off the bus now get out there like the mayor of uh, and the governor of New York did and said, now it's time to get back on the bus. Um, and we need to see that there is going to be workforce implications. A lot of our uh, workers have um, you know, come down with COVID-19. And so uh, I was talking with one trans agency last night who had a number, 160 of their employees were affected by COVID-19. And so they're going to have to feel comfortable to come back to work as well. And we're going to have to make sure that they have the proper personal protective equipment and the right strategies to make sure that they maintain safety too. A lot of transit systems have gone to the plastic shield by the driver so that it's a shame because they won't be able to have as much personal interaction with the passengers but in order for them to kind of future-proof uh, their transit systems for any future pandemic or a, or a spike in this again, that's what's happening. Now, what are some other tools that people are using to future-proof their agency? This picture here is a great picture in Sydney, Australia, of the Rail Operations Center uh, that I was able to visit last year just before it opened. One of the coolest places they've got what they're calling the biggest TV screen in the world in there. (laughs) And um, Howard Collins is a CEO, a a good friend of mine, and uh, just has done a tremendous job putting together technology tools. And that's what I see happening across the world is transit agencies are realizing that they can help future-proof their agency by putting into place the right technology. What kind of technology, you might ask? Here's some of what I see happening. I think that folks are realizing they need the right tools for scenario planning, for rerouting their service and adjusting the rosters of their drivers and the shifts. So they need to have good planning and scheduling tools, good ITS schools, uh, tools, uh, and workforce management. So for instance, my friend Roger, who runs uh, Oahu Transit Services in Hawaii, like a lot of transit systems this last year, has gone to high-frequency service where they're not managing the bus route uh, by time points anymore. And instead, they're managing it through a headway management. And so the tools that are necessary, the right ITS tools to kind of track the bus through GPS and to keep the distance between those vehicles is critical. Folks uh, don't want to have to worry about a paper schedule anymore. They'd like to see the bus just come on a regular schedule like a train. 
folks are going to have to be able to shift their driver shifts quickly if something like this happens again. And if they're doing it on paper or Excel or some antiquated technology, that's not going to work. They need to have the latest and greatest technology so you can move things quickly in an event of a pandemic or an emergency of some type. Also, we're seeing people move to tools to allow for online booking. This is a big one. As you know, in paratransit services, I used to run Washington, D.C. paratransit service for WMATA under as a contractor. And uh, I had, you know, 90 reservations sitting in a room right next to each other. Well, obviously, during this pandemic, that hasn't been able to continue. And folks have had to figure out other solutions, having people take calls from home. Uh, and so another big tool that folks are saying is, especially on demand response, they need to be able to allow for people to book online or book on their cell phone so that they don't have to call in. It also allows for a lot more options for the passenger. And then finally, folks are realizing that they have to really better track their assets. I've been in some major transit system yards just recently uh, where they didn't really know where the vehicles were on the yard at any given moment. It was based on a utility personnel walking through the yard, making uh, notes of where each vehicle was and which slot, and then bringing it back in and posting it up on the board and dispatch. Well, that doesn't work anymore, especially now in this age of COVID where vehicles are having to be cleaned more often, uh, where people are having to keep track of their assets and their vehicles and how often they've been cleaned uh, and uh, the restrooms and the elevator shafts that are being cleaned down on a regular basis. So yard management tools and um, asset management uh, IT tools are critical in order to know exactly where your vehicle is at all time on the yard. Many people know that most accidents occur in the yard as well. And so Seeing exactly where your bus, your rail cars are, your facility cleaning vehicle location, you have to have the intelligence that's only available through high-tech tools, uh, software, and, and the right hardware in your vehicles in order to make that happen. That's the way, in my opinion, that you future-proof and help recover from this COVID-19 crisis. Now let's take a quick look at the future of a couple other items coming from my book, which, by the way, if you haven't seen a copy of it, you can get it on Barnes & Noble or Amazon for electronic download or, uh, or a paperback copy. Uh, it's called The Future of Public Transportation. And what we saw is that the future of maintenance is going to be very different, isn't it? I mean, you all already know this. Autonomous vehicles, driver telematics, cameras, onboard diagnostics, contactless pay systems, onboard Wi-Fi and zero emission buses. I mean, these are all really high-tech solutions, and the traditional diesel mechanic just isn't going to be able to um, – that's not kind of where this whole system is going. Uh, folks are going to need a very different technology-focused skill set, and so you're going to have to retrain your existing mechanics, and as you attract new mechanics, it'll look very different, your advertising will and the skill sets you're going to be advertising for. Also, you're probably aware of this, but right now, uh, artificial intelligence – is putting out uh, predictive maintenance tools for folks to use. So using GPS tracking data, current driver behavior, and historical data, these machine learning algorithms can determine when a bus and rail car should come in for maintenance. So for my whole career, the last over 30 years, 33 years in this business, it's basically been based on mileage. When the vehicle hits 5,000 miles, we bring it in for an A, prevent a maintenance routine inspection. And then after a certain many miles or, or days on service, a rail car will come in. But now, more than ever, artificial intelligence is telling us exactly when a vehicle needs to come in for maintenance or preventive maintenance. What are some of the other mobility trends that we saw coming into 2020 and will continue in 2021? These are the four big areas which we call out in the book and which I believe are even still more relevant than ever. Urban street management, 
in this era of COVID-19, when so many things are having to be delivered and folks aren't able to get out on themselves too much, we've seen curb management even more important than ever. Some cities have designated, here's where the taxis and you know, Uber and Lyft will park. Here's where food delivery will park. And here's where Amazon and other delivery trucks will park. And they've actually sectioned off parts of their curb. Uh, folks have really gone big into bikes during this time. And cities have set out, I think there was 19 cities I saw around the world over the last six weeks have car-free city centers now or portions of their city center where they're saying only bikes and scooters and uh, pedestrians can use. Bus-only lanes continue to be very important. Transit signal priority, these are ways which reduce the friction that slow the vehicles down and allow them through transit signal priority to get through the lights quicker. That's going to be key in getting people back on the bus as they see it as an efficient means to do so. Congestion charging, again, where it keeps the buses, uh, where it keeps the cars out of the main part of the city like London does. And Andy Byford was able to get set up in New York State before he left in a New York City. And L.A., my friend there, Phil Washington, is trying to get in other cities around the world are doing. And then bus rapid transit. These continue to be big trends. On the technology side, we see the rise of microtransit. This is um, you taxi cabs or other microtransit vehicles to make sure that people are moved where they need to go quickly. Autonomous vehicles now more than ever, where there's actually no passenger on board. I was able to ride the first one a couple of years ago in Switzerland that was in regular route service outside of Zurich. And now we're seeing pilots all over the world where autonomous vehicles will continue to be a bit, play a big part in a niche role in public transportation. Mobile fare payment, wearables, uh, positive train control, traction control, first and last mile solutions, mobility as a service, smart infrastructure, 5G where they're not burning down the towers, and artificial intelligence. All of these technology tools, moving your software to the cloud, it's all even more important now than ever. And that moves us to the contactless fares, which obviously are based on technology or a zero fare or cash free. These are big trends coming out of this. And then zero emission buses. Right. So electric and CNG and hydrogen. So important. Folks from L.A. to Shanghai could finally see the horizon in the skies in their cities and they want to be able to keep that. So we don't want them to rush back to their cars to get back on our buses, which are always a cleaner alternative. And then we want to talk about taxi and how we can see that integrating into the public transportation mix. So important in some cities and in most cities where Uber and Lyft and other TNCs have in some cities, almost been a death knell to the taxi industry. But taxis are a key part of public transportation in a demand response sense. And as a first and last mile solution, getting people through their tram and light rail or heavy rail or bus operations uh, and the ability for them to get to the front door of your house and pick you up so you don't have to go and walk to your car, start it up, drive it where you're going to go, find a parking spot, then walk out uh, to the train. That adds time to your journey. Why not have taxi and e-hail be part of that? That's a big part of the public transportation mix. And now quickly, I want to talk about a couple more slides before we move and have Phil Verster speak to us. I studied the seven major systems in the U.S. that saw an increase in ridership in 2018 and also uh, visited the United Kingdom, talked to them and in Australia and then places in Europe and met with their CEOs. And as I analyzed it, I put it together kind of, uh, I think, inductively, and I like to pull things together and see these trends. And what I saw is that they're really what we call three silver bullets to see an increase in ridership in traditional transit. And every major transit system that I studied was doing one or more of these items. And that was number one, to reboot their bus network. The city of Houston here in the United States started this trend in 2017 with Seattle following, and my system in Baltimore did, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, we saw a lot of systems around the world basically analyze 
that, hey, our bus route network was laid out 30 to 50 years ago and doesn't necessarily reflect where people want to go today. So instead, it's a big analysis on where the jobs are and the population shifts. Instead of just tweaking one or two routes, this is a way to overnight transform your entire system, which we did in Baltimore. We called Baltimore Link and we you know, adjusted. We had 6,000 bus stops. We adjusted them down to 5,000 took bus stops out where they were not needed, where they didn't meet certain standards, so we could speed the bus along. Uh, and um, in most cities, this has led to a great increase in ridership. Uh, it's a big key to taking people where they want to go today. Not all the rides in your transit system need to take people to the central business district of your city, uh, where the most congestion is and where the vehicles slow down the most. The second thing people are doing is adding frequency. High-frequency transit is routes that run on headways of 10 to 15 minutes, like clockwork. And so you don't need a paper schedule. Cities like London, Singapore, and as I mentioned, Hawaii have gone to this, uh, and many, many other cities. It's the new trend in order to get people on the bus. The Visa credit card did a survey, which they worked with me a little bit on my book. They gave me some data for it. And the surveys, they found that one of the top complaints that passengers had or people had about public transit in general was that it was so slow in the major city areas. And they felt like, you know, I can almost walk faster than I can ride the bus. And so anything to increase the frequency of the routes and then number three, reduce the friction that slows the bus down. So adding in, like I said, bus-only lanes, transit signal priority, e-faring, off-board faring. Get this, in Baltimore, we used to allow people, and I think they still do, to purchase a day pass at the fare box. So they would get on, they'd get $4.10, to the driver or put it in the fare box, one bill at a time, and then drop in a dime. And then the driver would have to type in some information, pop out a ticket. That transaction on average took 30 seconds. And uh, we added that up. My, my uh, COO, John Duncan, said, let me add this up. He added it all up. It was 56,000 wasted hours of productivity a year on our bus system alone, which think about that. If you've got six people in queue to get on the bus, one or two of them are doing that, how much time that adds to people getting on the bus. If you have anything like that going on on your bus right now, people are working on ways to reduce that friction that slows the transit system down and speeds up the overall speed of it to allow people to want to get on. Those are the silver bullets. Where are we going on rail? Uh, Well, we need to future-proof our rail and our metro systems. I spoke last year in Australia around the country about this state of good repair and ISO 55,000 standards, increasing automation and frequency and the technology. That is the future of rail. Maglev, in my opinion, is old tech. It's expensive. There's been little progress here in North America on it. I think what's happening now across the world is higher-speed trains that are not Maglev, but high-speed traditional trains that are going 200 to 250, 300 miles per hour, uh, higher kilometers per hour. I've ridden some of them across in Europe. I got to ride Maglev in China 10 years ago when I was a CEO of a county government here, and we did a sister city relationship with Suzhou. But I just don't see that happening. I think now Hyperloop is becoming more science than fiction. And we will see some of that happen this decade, I believe, with you know Elon Musk group, the traditional Hyperloop, and then Sir Richard Branson's Hyperloop 1 uh, I've talked to some of those folks uh, high up, you know, the CEO, et cetera, and uh, they're believing that they're going to have these happening in this decade. One more thing, as I was reading through my book, The Future, and editing the chapters from my 40 contributors, I, re- I kept thinking, you know, there's one more thing I want to talk about, one more thing. So ended up having a final chapter, and these are some of the topics in that chapter, which is workforce development. We talked about this a little bit, but unionized drivers and mechanics, we need to be working on them to give them, train them with the new skills, the high-tech skills, as their functions are starting to change. Uh, even with autonomous vehicles, driver skill sets may need to change to become 
more of a, a concierge for the system. And we want to make sure that no one is left behind. Transit provides equity to all groups of people, econo- you know, socioeconomic, et cetera, but also in our employee base. We want to make sure that we have opportunities for everyone, regardless of their gender or their or the race or whatever. We want to make sure that no one is left behind, even in the leadership ranks, even in the driver ranks, even in the mid-staff ranks. We want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to, to rise. Transit needs to be the shining example of true equity, both for our passengers and for our employees and stakeholders. Uh, Public-private partnerships are key. Design, build, operate, maintain, and finance. When I was CEO of Baltimore, I led the largest P3 project in America, a $5 billion project called the Purple Line. They're having a little difficulties right now with one of their main contractors, but it's still across the world is the way that major construction projects, I think, are going to be done. And then finally, the exciting part, uh, and I talk about this, I'm, I'm writing a new children's book on public transportation. It's got pictures of all the different modes of transportation for the last 200 years, from the Tom Thumb Railroad to Hyperloop and beyond. And one of the key things in the book that I think will excite children is the possibility for shared air travel, no longer just airplanes, but personalized travel. Uh, I sat on a platform with uh, one of the leaders of Uber Air, which I know is coming to uh, Melbourne soon. And, uh, and also Unmanned Drones, organization that does those, does those. And both of these are real and they're coming your way. I think within five years, you'll be able to, you know, on your phone, call for an unmanned drone or an Uber Air to come to your building, pick you up on the roof and take you to another building. Or think about this within the next decade, if they could come land in your front yard, you push a button and an unmanned drone lands right in your front yard, you get in and for $99, it takes you to the top of a building in downtown. What an amazing, and you know, the more people that use it, we'll get it down to $49 maybe, right? So it, just the amazing things that are happening are phenomenal. One of the leaders in our industry that is helping things happen like this, uh, who I think is leading the future of public transportation, is Phil Verster, who I introduced earlier in uh, our talk today. And so I'd like to invite Phil back on camera and to talk some today about what he calls the four musts, things that transit systems must do. Phil, are you there? I am, Paul. Thank you very much for the introduction, Paul. No unmanned drones here in Toronto yet this morning. <laughs> but what I want to share with you is uh, sort of the four things I think that are very crucial uh, for a transit system to work really well. And give you a sense, we've got about a $1 billion US dollar annual expense, and we invest about $3.5 billion um, US dollar into our um, transit every year, and that is into light rail, into subways, into new bus BRT routes, into our fare management system called Presto, um, contactless payments, all of that. And so we've got a very exciting, rapidly growing infrastructure which drives the economy of the greater Toronto area. And to be honest, a large part of Canada depends on how Toronto operates. But the four things that are crucial to a transit system is firstly, You've got to get your whole organization to believe in safety. It changes fundamentally the culture of your organization if safety is that North Star, which sort of leads how people think and make decisions. Now, I've seen this in our COVID recovery, for example, together with that, uh, that, that, th- that, that second focus, which is operate like a business, I have, we, we've been so innovative in terms of responding to COVID because we have a culture of safety first and operate as a business. Let me give you an example. Within a span of a, of a few weeks, 
our teams have had innovated a new way to protect bus drivers from customers in terms of creating a separation, going cashless, as Paul has explained, rapidly expediting contactless payments as part of our fare management system. And the impetus for an organization to respond to things like COVID comes from what's the underlying culture in the organization. And so let me give you an example then as well about operating as a business. You know, when you work with an organization which jointly on capital and operational expenditure turns over around four, four and a half to five billion a year, um, you've you've got to have clear principles of how you transact. Um, you've got a huge supply chain. Your supply chain must trust you as a responsible owner. Um, you must have very clear commercial principles. They, 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 they must know they'll get paid. They get when they have a claim on a construction site, they get a fair deal. But also that that you're going to be responsible with taxpayers' money. And I think that's extremely important in the type of markets we operate in. So I want to give you an example of satisfying your customer, which I think is the third must. You've got to focus on your customers. You've got to be inventive. I find sometimes transit organizations, you know, Paul gives a good example there of bus routes um, that have been there for 20 years. And and there's very little innovation around thinking whether that's still where your customers travel to and from. And when you focus on satisfying your customer, then you set your organization up to market products well, to use channels such as e-ticketing and to have good marketing campaigns, to really understand what customers want. We are now busy planning our recovery and re-entry post-COVID. And uh, one of the really exciting things we've done is we've we've got fantastic links with our customers and we scanned them all and we, we've contacted them all and gave them a survey and ask them what's important for them on a re-entry of services and what would get them to come back to transit. And what we then did is, uh, and we announced it last week, our trains and buses will all have polycarbonate screens between seats because we want to try and maximize the capacity and still maintain physical distancing in our buses and our trains. And so we basically provide a private cocoon where every person can sit and that huge investment was driven by listening to our customers and excel at satisfying our customers and focusing on the customer. You know, so often transit systems focus on the logistics. And, and Paul gave great examples there of where you focus on the customer. You think about that friction element Paul referred to, which we call journey time, minimize journey time, maximize punctuality. Um, and therefore, that, that headway of service and make sure that you run the right services to the right place at the right time with the right support. I'll give you one more example, and, and, and that comes to the fourth, the fourth must, which is to innovate. So when we spoke to our customers, we said to them, look, what's really important to you? And customers came back universally saying to us, my health is. And so what we've gone and done is, um, and we started it last week, we've got... 21, we've got 68 um, railway stations, and on 21 of them, and 17 of those 21 rotate four is permanent, we've got 21 health kiosks where a customer can walk up, um, get their temperature checked, and be advised on whether they should travel or not. We don't compel them not to travel if they've got high temperature, we just advise. We've got 
hand cleansers and hand sanitizers at every bus, every bus doorway, every rail train doorway. And we've got further in the health kiosks, we've got a cleaning agent test where we demonstrate the importance of the cleaning agents we use on our trains. We've got a hand cleanser demonstration, which shows you how many germs you've got on your hands and how you get away from that if you clean your hands. So fantastic stuff, stuff like that. You've got to innovate and you've got to have these four musts if you want to run a good railway and a good transit system. I love it, Phil. That's awesome, man. As always, good advice for everyone in public transportation. I want to go into our Q&A section and uh, talk to our guests and ask them about how they're recovering from COVID-19. Let me ask Abby. Abby in Nigeria, what's been happening there with COVID-19 and your transit system? How are you all recovering? Thanks, Paul. So if you know anything about Lagos at all, you know that we have a high population. So for the city of Lagos, there's a lot of mass transportation trips that are generated a day. So in Lagos, we are looking at anything from 12 to 14 million trips a day. Now, when COVID happened, like every other city, we were on lockdown. And in that time, public transportation system went from 100% to almost 0%. And that was fine because everybody was staying indoors in accordance with the lockdown rules. Following lockdown, we start to open up little by little. And one of the things we found was so that we consider the health of the people that are taking the buses, we put a number of things in place. So the buses have come back on and we've ensured that uh, when we started, we said that the buses couldn't take any more than 20 passengers, which meant that you would never be sitting next to someone which was fantastic in a way to control the spread of the virus. But it was also a problem when you think about the numbers of people trying to get on the system. So for Lagos, for instance, when we had all of that social distancing, we found we now had a new problem, which was that we were having passengers queuing outside of the buses and crushing. So in moving forward, we've now said, okay, We are going to now have 42 passengers. Everybody can sit, but you can't get on a bus unless you've got your face mask on. You've sanitized outside of the door and you are constantly being told about the things that you need to do. Just like um, was said earlier, that you need to show them how to wash their hands. You show them continuous washing for 20 minutes. At every bus terminal, we have... um, hand washing equipment there. So we have running water, we have sanitizers and all those things. And it's almost become second nature to everybody that's getting on a bus. You can't get on a bus in Lagos without your face mask. It's not supposed to happen. So we've had to do those sorts of things to allow us to carry more passengers whilst ensuring somehow that we pay attention to their health and ensure somehow that we don't spread this virus as much as we obviously could if we didn't do anything. So for Lagos, there's a lot going on. Even with, if you know Lagos at all, you know we have these minibuses. We call them dampers. So in Lagos, we have the regulated transportation and we have the unregulated one. And these are these little buses. And all of these little buses, they've been told you can't carry a full capacity anymore. And they are complying. It's been very challenging for the people because now people are having to walk a lot more, sometimes not because they want to, but just because 
the demand for public transportation right now far exceeds what we have available for us to, to use. Okay. And in that sense, we are managing our situation, but it's all about the health of the people and ensuring that we don't spread the violence. Thank you. And Abby, what does your ridership back up to as of today? Is it percentage-wise? You said it went almost down to nothing. What is it up to, would you say, today? I would say that we're almost back to 90-95%. Because understand that the city of Lagos is very different. We don't have an economy that makes it very easy to work from home like you have in the West. So there's a lot of people who take public transport who are daily wage earners. And they have to go out on a daily basis. So whilst in the West you have a different challenge, our challenge is completely different. So the percentage of people who probably can work from home is maybe 10%, 15% of our workforce. So in that sense... Abby, what's really interesting, I just want to check with you, um, is how quickly people have recovered then and uh, how quickly have their behaviours adjusted? Have you found that process to be very quick? Um, I would say that I think the lockdown that we had was a very positive thing because people then had to realize that for us to go out, things had to change. And I was pleasantly surprised that a lot of people were happy to wear their masks and happy to sanitize. A lot of our operators had the sanitizers there and a lot of people had put rigged up running water by their bus stations and all of that. So there's been, I would say, 70% 70% compliance when it comes to ensuring that they, they're wearing masks, they're sanitizing, some people wear gloves, whatever it is. And I think the lockdown helped because it allowed us to sort of think about why we were locked down. And if you're going to be let out again, there are certain things you need to do. And that, I think, so our compliance has been better than I expected, yes. That's great. Hey, Abdullah, so you're coming from Kuwait in the Middle East. Tell us about what's been happening there in the age of COVID and now that you're starting to recover. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on this webinar. Kuwait and the Middle East is a bit different. Uh, you know, different regions in the Middle East. You have the North uh, Africa, of course, the, the Levon region and the, the GCC, the Gulf region. Each one of them had a different perspective of what's happening. And of course, each city had taken it in a different uh, chain with COVID and public transportation. Here in Kuwait, uh, I represent a company called KGL, Kuwait and Gulf Link. We are in uh, supply chain management. Uh, We've been in the business for more than 60 years in Kuwait. Uh, We also uh, serve public transportation service as bus operations in Kuwait and in Sharjah. We've been doing that since 2005. Uh, we have about uh, 1,800 buses between public transport and school transportation, and we do about 85 million passengers per year. So we, we do very heavy public transport operation for the region here, for the, for the MENA region, and the, particularly the Gulf uh, countries. I mean, of course, last year in Kuwait, 2019, I would say it was our highest numbers of ridership in public transport and the bus operation that we had since... Uh, when we started organizing public transport in Kuwait since 1965. So from 1965 till 2019, last year, we had the highest numbers. And January was really promising of 2020. But nevertheless, I mean, COVID started and started hitting Kuwait in February. And things went, of course, down. Kuwait has taken the decision, the Kuwaiti government has taken a very wise decision to stop 
every uh, mode of public transport uh, that we have, taxis, uh, buses, all has been stopped since March. Until now, we're completely uh, stopped at the public transport. According to the numbers that we have in Kuwait now with COVID and what we have uh, happening, there's a five-stage uh, uh, plan that we will go back into country as back to normal life. And we're expecting that public transport will go back in Kuwait uh, August 2nd. So this is when we're expecting. We are expecting 40% ridership, but we will see how things will, will develop and how things will happen then. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, that's great, Abdullah. Thank you for that input. So now I'm going to give a few questions that are coming in from the audience. I'm going to combine two questions for you, Phil, that have come in for you. Question for Phil. He refers to large investments to make transport safe for commuters. What would he propose for cities lacking available funding? And uh, also another question. Has there been any innovation in the transport industry to take account of public emotional stress as it relates to COVID? So funding and the, the public's emotional distress. I really liked Abby's approach when she talked about how Lagos have responded. And not every city has got the similar economic challenges and, and the similar economic possibilities. And I think what you have to do as a transit operator, you have to get your message across to your ridership about what, under whatever circumstances of investment or finances you have, what are the important behavioral things they need to focus on? And the secret is just listen to your customers. You just have to listen to your customers. And when you help your customers to find a way forward, despite the difficult circumstances that you may face in a particular city, if you haven't got investment, I think you're going to get, you're going to get a heck of a lot done and a heck of a lot in the, into the right place. Now, with regard to innovation, I've got to say, I mean, our health kiosks that we, we're operating at stations, it sounds like such a small idea, but it is immensely popular. I mean, we've got something that looks like an iPad where you stand in front of the iPad, you look at the iPad and the device senses your temperature and tells you your temperature is, be is below 38 degrees C or above 38 degrees C. And people just love it. They get a sense of comfort from it, their journey. We've got, as I said, 21 of these, a third of our stations of these. Some of them we do pop-ups where they, we move them between stations. Customers love it. The fact that you care, the fact that you show you care matters. So think of small, practical ways to innovate. It's massively popular. That's great. Abby, what's happening there in Lagos when it comes to funding of transportation going forward? Tell us about the funding levels going forward. Do you see public transit remaining supported by your government or more funds coming in? In Lagos, I guess when you think about our population and our economic position, we realize that one of the ways we can sustain public transportation is to invite private sector in. So one of the things that we're doing now, which we had been planning before, but I think, you know, when I said, when I spoke earlier, I talked to you, Paul, about the positives of COVID. So now we realize that really and truly government can't do it all. So we're dealing and talking to a number of private operators. So from Lagos State's perspective, we put infrastructure out there. So we have dedicated BRT lanes. We have ferries that we're building. We have bus stops, bus terminals. So we're doing all the major infrastructure and we're inviting private sector to come in by the rolling stock, so like buses and ferries, wherever we need them, and they run it. So for that, they pay us a tiny sum of money for the infrastructure, 
and the profit is all theirs. But what it allows us to do is to rapidly increase the number of available public transportation trips to the people. So as part of what government is doing to encourage that, recently they've doubled the number of buses that the state actually has in terms of high-capacity buses. This is also to demonstrate to the private sector that's coming that we're committed to this, and this is the way we want to see it go. And we have gotten a lot of positive response from private sector, and over the next six months we will be rolling out large numbers of buses based on private investment. So for Lagos, this is a real positive way forward in terms of increasing what we see as public transportation. That's great. Abdullah, let me ask you a question. How do you plan to leverage technology to support your COVID recovery and any future plans you have there in the Middle East? As we know, uh, technology is the future of of public transport. But I believe or I feel as uh, what we have uh, witnessed and lived through COVID, that our plans that we have for technology to go in the future are going to be speeded up. I mean, we're going to speed up technology development uh, in in our uh, cities and in our uh, particularly public transportation system. Because, again, at the end of the day, we saw that technology helped us to bring back to public transport or to have public transport with social distancing. It showed us that we could control the number of the people on the bus or the riders on the bus. It showed us that we could have that distance between the driver and the riders. So there's a lot of things that we could benefit from technology uh, that we saw or we witnessed during uh, COVID that we haven't seen the benefit of it in the past. So this is something that uh, we are going to speed up our plans. I believe that we're going to speed up as, as a company here and, and the region, uh, our plans of uh, having technology in, in our uh, public transportation systems. I'll give you an example, Abdullah, of something similar that to what you are saying that we've done. And, and I think you are absolutely right. The use of technology must really help the customer. We've, we've come up with what we call a crowding, a crowding app which is on your phone, and you can see with your train arriving, you can see which of the vehicles are full and which of the vehicles are empty. And that helps people to distribute themselves so that they can get better physical distancing by going to vehicle 10 in the train length and the train consists because vehicle 10 is emptier. So I think you're right, Abdullah. Uh, Technology, as Paul Paul has hinted at, is going to become more and more an enabler for people to do things differently. And it's exciting, isn't it? All right. We're receiving lots of questions. So I'm just going to help Paul in facilitating them. One's come through for you, Phil, in particular. What have been some of the challenges you faced and how have you overcome them? One of the biggest challenges, really, is to build confidence with people that are after being in lockdown, they are socially sort of separate from going back to work. Uh, they have a very strong concern about whether there's a vaccine available where they can travel again. So a really, really big challenge is just to give your customers a sense of comfort and that you take their best interests to heart. And I think that's extremely important. Now, we've done quite a lot of marketing campaigns with a campaign called Safety Never Stops. And we've done this uh, huge investment in creating polycarbonate screens on our on our buses and our trains, which keep people safe. And I think that level of uh, messaging is necessary. And in different cities would do it very differently. But for us, that was really important. 
thank you, Phil. Does any of the other panelists want to elaborate on the challenges that they've faced and, and how they've overcome them? When you look at the challenges that we've had, there, it was something that Phil was talking about, that they had this health kiosk. That was something we found. We had just a thermometer, so where you could take the temperatures of people. And that was something that we used on the regulated bus system. So before you got on, apart from having washed your hands and all of that, you also took their temperature. And like Phil said, a lot of the passengers really liked that. The fact that mm. it appeared at least that you were concerned enough about their health. And when you take it, and like Phil said, you're just going to be telling them, actually, you, your temperature is 38 degrees or something. And he knows right there and then, okay, I may have a problem or I don't have a problem. And I think that was good for them. When we also look at the biggest problem we had was crowd control outside of the buses. So yeah. some of the things we've done is to try and mark out where you can queue. And we had to do that. Once we increased the number on the buses, we also now told all the operators that outside where they're queuing, physically show them what physical distancing is. You know, when you are trying to get on a bus, it's probably the last thing you're thinking about. But when it's marked out for you, everybody would then be able to queue alongside those guided lines. And that had sort of helped. And a lot of people appreciated that as well. So those are the sort of things we've done to overcome some of our challenges. Thanks for that. Abby, what about you, Abdullah? What about the challenges you faced and, and how you've overcome them? Well, I mean, the, the biggest challenge for us uh, as, a, as an operator here in Kuwait, uh, we are a private operator. Uh, and in Kuwait, uh, public transportation is not subsidized directly. We really, I mean, work uh, based on ridership. So having stopped the public transportation really affected our source of revenue directly. So this gave us a challenge of a fleet that we have that has to stop, of course, with the staff that is in place. So uh, some of the challenges we had with that, I mean, we haven't had this in Kuwait, in this magnitude to stop public transportation since 1965. I mean, since public transport started in Kuwait, uh, organized in 65 till today or till COVID came in place, public transport had never stopped. Even though if any of us remember the Gulf War in Kuwait, when Kuwait was yeah. invaded in 1980, even then they operated public transport. They oh. stopping public transport operation for four months. It's really a big hit on the country and on, on the operators. So what we have done to, to, to overcome that, we have, uh, uh, even though we're a private operator, we joined hands with the government, with the Minister of Health, Minister of Interior, uh, that we offered them our assets for their operations, for their support and, and you know, moving uh, people around uh, that has. So we have done a, a shared uh, support to, to the government here, to the Kuwaiti government with all of our assets that we have, most of our buses. That's one of the things that we have uh, taken place to, to come overcome this challenge. That's great. Thanks. Let me tell you about a couple other things that I've heard from around the country. I've been talking to probably 30 CEOs over the last few weeks about how they're responding to COVID-19 as part of my um, Comforts Corner Transit Unplugged podcast. Some interesting ideas have happened. So uh, across a lot of North America, paratransit, meaning you know individualized transportation for people with disabilities, has also been dramatically affected the ridership levels. And so a lot of the private companies like uh, TransDev, First Transit, MV, Keolis, National Express, RATP Dev, 
they have volunteered to have some of their drivers do other duties since they didn't have it, uh, regular driving to do for them. So they've stepped up and done Meals on Wheels, uh, helped to take doctors and nurses from their homes directly to hospitals and medical clinics. They've gone and actually picked up groceries for people and brought them back to their house. So the paratransit professionals across North America have been busy meeting all the community needs. One other interesting aspect of how this has impacted folks is that a lot of children have had to do their schoolwork from home. I know I've got two college-age daughters and uh, one that's in middle school, and they've all you know, basically stopped going to school for the last three or four months. And so they're doing their work online. Well, this is happening across the world. And what some places have done in cities uh, such as uh, in San Antonio, Texas, they've actually driven their paratransit vehicles out to apartment complexes that did not have good Wi-Fi internet for the children there. And they park the van close to the apartments and the van has Wi-Fi in it and it sends a signal out that they can receive it in the apartment so that young people, children can log on to that and do their schoolwork. So these are some of the interesting and creative approaches to responding to the COVID-19 crisis that transit services across North America have done. Megan, if I can add an example to that, we, exactly as Paul says, we're using our, our buses, which are, um, we, we're not as lucky as Abby is to have had back to 90% recovery. We had about 20, 25% back to, of, of our normal levels of service. So I'm using my buses now to move medical equipment throughout the, the region to you. I, I have dedicated a couple of buses for medical staff, frontline staff, to move them between critical hospitals and the like. So it presents opportunities to innovate under these circumstances. Thank you, Phil. We've had quite a lot of questions come in around funding. Abby, I know cities in Africa have constant funding challenges. What can African agencies do to attract funding? When we're talking about attracting funding, I think the fund donors are looking for a city that is interested in being innovative in terms of what infrastructure they're willing to put out there. So one of the things you need to do as a city, and Lagos does a lot of that, is look forward to how you can improve your public transportation infrastructure. So for Lagos, for instance, we will the first city, I think, in Africa to develop a BRT route. Uh, so the World Bank supported that hugely. And we have, within our master plan, we have 14 bus BRT routes. We have one that is fully functional now. We have another that's just been completed and will be, imp- will be put into operations in another month or so. And we have one that is uh, 75% complete. So we get a lot of interest like that because we're constantly evolving when it comes to developing public transport. We have recently started to develop our waterways, so we're building a lot of ferries. We're also, within our transport plan, talking a lot about intermodal transport, ensuring that we have connectivity between the modes and even within the buses. So we have what we call the last mile, and I know, Um, Paul, you were talking about that earlier. We have what we call the last mile, ensuring that I can get people out of their homes. So walk a short distance, get on a last mile bus, which will take you to a feeder route bus or a BRT system. And that all of those sorts of things demonstrate a willingness for a city to develop huge capacity within its um, public transportation. And I think that's the way to attract funding. Because when they see that 
you are moving in the direction of ensuring that you are mass hiring funders are interested in you. Thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, it, this brings us to another question. Post-COVID, what do you see the role for your local government to fund public transport? And I think this is a question for the whole panel to discuss. Who would like to start? Let me kick it, I'll kick it off. I think um, having been an elected official here in America, I was a county commissioner as well as a county administrator, having run private sector transit companies and then having worked in the public sector, I see it from all three angles. And uh, one of the exciting things here in the United States is the federal government's involvement in public transportation which is the, you know, the national government. So many governments like in Canada has, have only been involved, the federal government's only been involved up until now in funding capital, bricks and mortar, buses, those kind of things. Here in the U.S., we've had the opportunity of the federal government being involved in operating dollars as well as capital. But the government, in my opinion, the, the national government, has never really seen public transit as a national priority. They have seen it as a local priority, where local cities and states were the ones that did most of the funding. And the federal government grants were largely there. Lately, they've become very competitive. You have to compete for them. They're looking for high-profile projects to fund, uh, like I did one in Baltimore called North Avenue Rising uh, after our uprising that happened in uh, in Baltimore. And we were working on improving a five-mile stretch of roads. But the federal government never really saw it as a national priority. As part of the CARES Act funding, which was our $2 trillion stimulus package, $25 billion was put into public transportation, which was 280% of our FY 2020 allocations. So basically, the federal government gave everyone their normal allocation for 2020, and then they added on to that 280%. So almost 400% in total of what they would what their normal amount was. So that was a phenomenal new level of funding. And we're pushing, I'm now part of a head of a new group called the North American Transit Alliance. We're pushing the federal government to continue higher levels of funding. And so while state and local governments, I think, have seen that this is critical, that um, the essential workers were still riding transit, and even when they told everyone to stay off, they're still riding 50% in most bus systems and most uh, subway systems. And so they are not niceties. Uh, Public transit is not a nicety like a cruise or an airline trip. It's an essential service. And so both federal governments and local and state governments need to invest in them appropriately, just like they do in roads and schools and parks. Public transit now is the new hero. We are the new necessity to make not only the wheels in the bus go round and round, but the wheels on our economy go round and round. What do you think, Phil? I absolutely agree. I think this is this is the, the important thing about transit. Um, as Paul puts it, it's a, people have realized it's a necessity, but here's the real thing. It is the engine for economics and economic development, and I think that's crucial. We in our region, you can just see it needs people from all parts of the community to get to all different parts of the, of the city and of the region in order to make the economy work. And you can only get so much done by a, a collaborative tools such as Teams or Zoom and the like, but in the end, we are social creatures and, and people want to work in teams and they want to get together and they want to work. And now that we've had a staged lift of the lockdowns over here, you know, people are swamping to restaurants and, and places like that. And I think the crucial factor here is that this is how an economy works and transit is right at the heart of it. And I think that's really, really crucial to remember. Abby, how about in Lagos? 
Yeah, I mean, I was just about to agree with you and Paul uh, and Phil, because when you look at it, if you think of Lagos, we generate, what, 14 million trips a day. Now, when you think about that in terms of revenue, in terms of where those people are going, you realize that public transportation is a necessity for the economic growth of any any city. And Lagos being such a a, a congested city and a capital, it's more like the commercial capital of, of, of Nigeria. It's, it's just, you know, like you say, it's an essential commodity. There's no way you can put those number of trips on private cars. It's not going to happen. So as a city, we need to begin to put large investments in our public transportation. I mean, the state is doing that. We're developing two rail lines as we speak, and we're hoping that that will generate um, other rail infrastructure. So within our master plan, we have seven rail lines. The state is facilitating the development of two, and we're also talking to private sector to come and implement or develop the remaining four or five of them. So public transportation can be big business, especially in a city where you have um, large numbers of people congregated and trying to move around. So it runs our economy and it ensures that our economy not only moves, but all essential services move. So it is the future and it is definitely the way for every city to go. Abdullah, any comments on funding from local governments or national governments there in the Middle East? I'll speak a little bit about Kuwait. I mean, funding and and supporting uh, public transportation I believe that it's a challenge all over the world. It doesn't matter how your system is, how much the government is involved, how much there are subsidiaries. I believe there's always a challenge with funding because there's, it's always not enough uh, to, to support the public transportation networks. I mean, as much as the government try to support, as much as uh, we as operators and uh, public transport service providers would want more of this because it is the future as, as we see. One thing about Kuwait, uh, we always want to show the government here as operators and, and uh, public transport experts the importance of public transportation from an environmental perspective and from traffic and accident perspective. We always strive to have like a public transport day where there is no cars or there is you know less cars at certain times. And you struggle to, to get to get those things approved. But nevertheless, with the COVID, uh, we went on a lockdown for 20 days, 21 days. And to see the level of the environmental impact and the level of fatality in car accidents and the level of uh, emptiness in the roads and, and, the, and the urban space available for you, it really, everybody saw it. I mean, all the government official decision makers saw it live. And that's really, I feel, that uh, a positive aspect that came out of COVID uh, with us here in Kuwait. I believe that, uh, as I said, uh, with our support with the government, that we see that the, the future here in Kuwait is more growth in public transportation. Yeah, I want to encourage everyone, you know, that this moment of crisis is really a moment of opportunity for oh, public transit agencies. The focus is on us right now. We are the ones that are going to help our economy return. I mean, all the political leaders, all the business leaders are saying, you know, oh, my gosh, you know, this is, we've had to shut down here in America. We've had 40 million people lose their jobs over the last four months because of what happened. I mean, that's a big chunk of the economy. And now people want to return to work. They want the economy to the wheels on the economy to begin to turn. And we 
as uh, as Abby mentioned, we in public transit are the way that's going to happen. So we need to view this moment and think creatively, like Phil and Abby and Abdullah have talked about today. Think creatively about how can we help our government and be a partner with our industry to return uh, our economy and turn our our whole system, our civil society, turn it back on. What do you say, Phil? Oh, absolutely. You know what? Um, as we uh, went into April, we launched. 18, we call it BIPs, B-I-P-S, Business Improvement Plans, stuff that we've never done before but that we had to do during COVID, and we consolidated those changes into our, how business works. For example, we processed invoices manually. Because we had everyone at home, we couldn't, so we, we quickly moved it onto, elect, onto a digital platform. Now we're moving all of our invoices, all of our paperwork onto such a digital platform. And I, and I think you're right. I think transit, transit companies and transit people are actually at, at their heart very, very innovative people. We make do. We figure out ways forward. And I think all of us must tap into that in our organizations. And uh, I, think, I just think we're a huge engine for growth and for recovery. That's great. Megan? Thank you, Phil. We've probably got time for one more topic discussion. I'm seeing a lot of questions come in around technology. I know you mentioned this before, Paul, but you didn't get a chance to address it. Um, Abdullah said that technology is the future of transport. What do you see as the way that authorities and operators can leverage technology to future-proof their plans? That's great. Uh, let me comment on that a little bit, and then I'm sure our guests would like to say something as well. So when I got to the MTA in Baltimore as CEO, it was uh, back in 2015, it seemed like our entire agency was what I called stuck in the 1980s when it comes to technology. Uh, we were still having radio transmissions constantly from the operations control center to bus drivers instead of moving to the online aspects where they could actually see the conversation on their mobile data terminal. A, dri a driver would have to call in by radio and they would call back by radio. And we would have 50 bus drivers assigned to one controller and there's no way they could communicate that way effectively over the radio. All of our software was like 1980, 1990 vintage. There's so many things that were stuck 30 years ago and transit agencies have invested in what was considered, I call sexy, you know, the new bus line or the new rail line out to the airport or whatever, but they did not invest in their back office technology. And now they are ruining that day because now the harvest is bitter and they are not able to use the, the fresh new technology to do the things like I talked about in my presentation to identify where the vehicle is on the yard. Big transit agencies with thousands of vehicles still don't know exactly where their bus is in 2020 because they're relying on someone to visually report that. They're still doing morning checks of the bus when they go around to the pre-trip on paper instead of on a digital pad where they can check and that information flows into the operations control center and their maintenance yard who can then track the vehicles electronically. So many transit systems are stuck in what I call the 1980s. And now more than ever, they see the importance of, uh, okay, we've got to not worry about the billion dollars for this new bus line. We need to spend at least a few million dollars on upgrading our software and our technology. That's why I'm so thrilled to work for the world's number one transit technology company, Trapeze, because we really are, I do believe in what we're doing. We are helping transit agencies uh, come to the future with all kinds of tools, 70 tools, different software and hardware, everything you need to run a transit system you know, is available for folks. And, uh, and I think 
The other big tool is that tr- software has to talk to itself. So there can't be an interface in between of a person. So for instance, if a bus breaks down and a driver reports it on the NDT, it goes to dispatch and then dispatch has to pick up the phone and call yard supervision and have them send out a, a you know, somebody to check it out. So a road supervisor goes there and then the road supervisor calls the maintenance yard and asks somebody to come out with a tow truck and the tow truck. No, no, no. All that telephone calling and all of that uh, hand wringing over interpersonal, you know, communication or do they not get along? And so they're not talking. That all needs to be wiped out. It all. When I visited Switzerland, man, last year and went into Zurich and saw they use our software actually there and saw they had four controllers controlling a transit system for all of Zurich with a million passengers a day. And they said it's all done electronically. Everything, all of our communications, every and all the software talks to each other. So we push one button, it tells this software to do that, that tells that software to do that, and it gets out to the right people. That is the future. Interconnected software and technology in the vehicles, all communicating and making human intervention, which is almost always where it breaks down, be more of a supervisory function rather than a manual interpretation of data function. I was just about to say that for Lagos, it's interesting you say what you say. We've done two things now. We're moving away from cash and we're going down the route of e-ticketing. As we speak, we're actually piloting our e-ticketing system. So there's a lot of sensitization to the public and letting them understand that you are never now going to be able to get on a bus and try and pay money. So we're giving out cards and ensuring that there's something we call a QR code that you can use your mobile phone because a lot of people in Lagos actually use that. And you can use that to pay uh, at the bus and all of that. And to talk about um, ITS, it's also something we have recently keyed into. I would say for the past 12 months, we've had an ITS system. And that really has helped us because we do all of our scheduling now with all that system, planning, workforce planning, identifying where the bus is. You know, Paul, you were talking about when a bus has a problem, it's not about phoning somebody anymore. You can send a message to a bus and say to him, hey, guy, you're speeding and that's not very good. And that sort of interaction between the controller and the bus driver, we found very useful. So every bus driver, what we're trying to ensure is that when they, for every regulated system that has these onboard units, we're encouraging the drivers to make sure they log on. Because if the driver doesn't log on, then you can't track him. You can't sort of communicate with him. But a lot of them now, we're starting to get up to 90% log on with our bus drivers. And that allows us to be able to talk to them, tell them there's a problem further down the road, you may have to take a different turn, and all those sorts of things. We've found that very useful for us in controlling our bus system. And that we're hoping as we roll out more buses, I guess for us it's different. We're starting and we're rolling out. So as we roll out, we, ex- we hope to roll out with more of these um, ITS systems and Lagos is quite exciting at the moment when it comes to mass transportation. So we're all looking forward to this, to be able to have this ITS system run and control our bus transportation. So, yes, I agree completely that it's the way to go. And we're looking forward to joining that bandwagon. Very good. Megan? Is there any more comments on that from the panel? If not, we will close the webinar. Any other thoughts on, on technology before we wrap up? I just want to say Abby's passion and excitement is so, so palpable. I can feel it over here in Toronto, Abby, all the way from Lagos. 
Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. That's all we've got time for. I'm conscious that we have gone over time. Thank you to our prestigious panel for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight. So thanks again. Thank you to our audience for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your day. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.